started this morning and I said, this is going to be the best Sunday ever. And it said, why? And I said, because there's not a clock in the back. I'm I'm kidding. I got one in front of me. But um, you can go ahead and open your Bible to the second chapter of Galatians. And while you're turning to Galatians chapter 2, verse 17, I want to share with you a story about the, uh, the famous old preacher John Newton. Some of you probably heard his name before, uh, John Newton, uh, <clears throat> famous uh, Puritan pastor. Uh, two or three years before the death of John Newton, when his sight was so dim that he was no longer able to read, a friend and brother in the ministry called to have breakfast with him. Their custom was to read the Word of God following mealtime, after which Newton would make a few short remarks on the biblical passage, and then appropriate prayer would be offered. That day, however, there was silence after the words of Scripture, by the grace of God, I am what I am, were read. Finally, after several minutes, Newton spoke, I am not what I ought to be. How imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be, although I abhor that which is evil and would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be, but soon I shall be out of mortality, and with it all sin and imperfection. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am. Then after a pause, he said, now let us pray. (laughs) Y'all to have the kind of heart that he did to be able to say that and then say, now let us pray. It is a deep, abiding need in the Christian life to know that by the grace of God, we are what we are. You are not what... Well, if you are what you are because of you, I promise you, you are what you are. If you are the reason you are what you are, absolutely. That's exactly what you are. But for a Christian... Who we are, what we are, what we can be, what we hope to be, has nothing to do with us. Nothing. Has nothing to do with us. Has everything to do with Jesus Christ. I want us to look today at the source of righteousness. Now, I, I, normally I don't like to bring the kitchen into the dining room, but I toyed with a couple of titles to this sermon. I toyed with the source of true righteousness. I toyed with the title, the source of Christian righteousness. But I finally came down on the source of righteousness because it dawned on me there's not more than one. There's just righteousness. And either you are or you're not. And it doesn't matter what its source is. And there's only one source. So today we're going to talk about the source of Righteousness. So if you'll stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. And I hope y'all can hear me because this is all the microphone we got. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. 
For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. And if nothing else happens here today, I pray that somebody would leave today understanding Your grace that did not understand it when they got here. And whatever change that brings, we'll give the glory to You for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. (coughs) The source of righteousness. We've been in Galatians for uh, going on a couple of months now. And we are coming off of Paul confronting the Apostle Peter because Peter decided he wanted to play the hypocrite. He had come to visit Antioch. And when he got there, Peter thought it was perfectly fine to sit down and have a barbecue sandwich and eggs with the Gentiles. Delicious, wonderful barbecue, bacon, probably some shrimp thrown on the side, all things that Jews wouldn't want to eat. But then some of his buddies from Jerusalem came on down to Antioch and they decided that, well, maybe, maybe because these Jews are here, I need to stop eating with the Gentiles and I need to go eat with the Jews again because the Jews are going to be very, very, very offended that I'm eating with these unclean people. And all the rest of the Jewish Christians who had been following Peter, they follow him right into Peter's hypocrisy. Eating with the Jews when the Jews are around and staying away from the Gentiles, but when the Jews are gone, they'll eat with the Gentiles. And Paul calls Peter out for being a hypocrite and says, Peter, you're not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. You are judging these people as unclean based on the law. You are judging these people as unrighteous based on the law. And that runs full contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me give you a sneak peek of what Paul is about to do this morning. Paul is about to blow these Pharisaical Christians sky high. He has zero patience for legalism within Christianity. And let me understand, let me explain to you what I mean when I say legalism. Because listen, y'all, it's still an issue in the church today. Legalism is still an issue. Maybe not the Jewish variety. How many of y'all, you know, how many of y'all have great theological issues with putting bacon on something? Anybody? No, good. That's because bacon's delicious. All right? But the, the, the Jewish law is not our issue right now. Our issue is normally things like, well, that person's from the other side of the tracks. You know what kind of people they are. I'd be afraid if they, and you may never say this out loud, but whew, I'd be afraid if they walked in here, the roof might fall in. You know, they, we separate people in our heads as these are people who are candidates for the conversion, and these are folks who just, they, they are never going to come to Christ. They are effectively the unclean. We don't want to be around them. We don't want them around us. And these are the good folks. These are the folks that are already pretty good, but they just need enough of a dose of Jesus to get into heaven and make right what they already got going on. Now, that's not how we say it out loud. But sometimes that's, that's the way we can, in our humanity, in our sinfulness, we can begin to treat people. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. 
And Paul says, no, 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 you totally misunderstand the gospel because you're so hemmed up on legalism, you don't understand the grace of God and where God pulled you out of. Don't ever forget where Jesus pulled you out of. Don't forget where He pulled me out of. Don't forget where Jesus is pulling you out of. We all still got issues. Amen? Pastor included. We all have issues. There's not a single super saint in this building. And if if you think you are one, make an appointment with me afterward. We'll talk. I want us to just look at two very brief uh, statements that Paul has to make about Peter's theology. Because his theology was taking a very dangerous turn. First, I want us to see that Christian righteousness does not come from rule keeping. And I very, very, very purposefully said rule keeping and not from the law. Because the law can be a a loaded term. We can feel like we're doing really good at what Paul is saying here. And we just substitute our own rules for the, the Mosaic law. But Christian righteousness doesn't come from rule keeping. Look at verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ... We ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. This is a weird verse, isn't it? What is Paul saying? What's he getting at? The Pharisees are making an argument. And again, these are are Pharisees who have recognized Jesus as Messiah. These are not the same Pharisees. These are not the same Jews that think... These are not the same Pharisees that, that think of Jesus as a blasphemer. Okay? Pharisees, sometimes we give them a bad rap. There were plenty of Pharisees who came to Christ, one of whom was named Paul. Saul is a Pharisee, okay? So you don't see Pharisees specifically in here, but if you go back to Acts 15, which is where this argument started, this class of Jews who is making this argument, you need to be obedient to the Old Testament law, they're Pharisees. And they make an argument. Here's their argument. Every argument has at least two premises that lead to a conclusion. Premise one, this one has three. Righteousness comes from obedience to the law. The Jews believe that. If you want to be righteous, you've got to be obedient to the law. Premise two, the law precludes Jews from eating with Gentiles. If you want to see this at work, go back to the passage uh, a few chapters ago in Acts, if you've been following with us on Sunday nights, where Peter is hesitant to go to the house of Cornelius. And God has to give him a vision three times to tell him it is okay for him to go visit Cornelius. And then when Peter gets there, he says, you know it is unlawful for a Jew to eat with a Gentile. Paul's not arguing about that. That the law precludes Jews from eating with Gentiles. But what was Peter's reason for eating with the Gentiles in the first place? They were saved by Jesus, just like he was. So, if righteousness comes from the law, the law says Gentiles are unclean and therefore unrighteous, and Jesus is instigating Peter eating with the Gentiles, then these Pharisees are saying, the way you've set this up, you're making Jesus the cause of your sin. So Peter, you need to not eat with these Gentiles, because you are defaming our Lord Jesus Christ, because you are making him a minister of sin. And that argument was persuasive to a lot of Jewish Christians. So Paul is going to eat this alive. 
If you're going to blow up an argument, you don't start by attacking the conclusion. You start by attacking the underlying premises. So, is Paul going to attack the premise that Jesus is the reason Peter is eating with the Gentiles? No. Peter, Peter will tell you himself. The reason he's eating with the Gentiles is because God said, Do not call unclean what I've, what I've made clean. Let's not argue that point. Paul's not going to argue that the law precludes Jews from eating with Gentiles. That's true. Everybody knew that. The problem that Paul has a problem, the part that Paul has a problem with, is the belief that obedience to the law is what makes one righteous. Paul has a big issue with that. Look at verse 18. He says, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul is rebuking Peter with this. He's saying, Peter, you have preached God's grace to the Gentiles. You have told them that Jesus came and he died for them to make them clean, to make them acceptable to God. And you have told them they're saved by faith and not by keeping the law. And then you're turning around and you are treating them as though the death and resurrection of Jesus had no effect whatsoever. You're telling them they're saved by grace, but they're accepted by everybody else on the basis of whether or not they keep the law. Listen, he says, Peter, if somebody is righteous because they keep the law, then you just lied to them about everything Jesus did. And you never should have said it. You should have just gone and told them to keep the law. And if somebody is saved by faith, if they're saved by what Jesus has done and that's it, then you need to drop this mess about the law because they're not saved by it if they're saved by faith in grace. You can't have it both ways. It's either the law or it's faith. It ain't both. That's what he's rebuking you with. He says, Peter, when you go back to these Gentiles and you do this to them, you are building back up that stumbling block that has been taken out of the way. You are making yourself a transgressor because effectively what you're saying is that if the law is necessary, Jesus' whole life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection was a giant waste of time. If you're going to preach to somebody that God doesn't accept or reject people based on the law, and then you turn around and do that? It's you who is the sinner, not Jesus. That's a pretty hefty accusation to make, isn't it, by the way, to say that Jesus is the reason somebody is a sinner? That's a pretty hefty accusation. and They weren't really accusing Jesus. They were saying, Peter, here's proof that you've misunderstood this whole law thing. And Peter says, no, here's proof that you misunderstood the law thing. You think that the law is what makes you righteous. Now look at verse 19. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. What does he mean that through the law he died to the law? That Christ died as our lawful sacrifice. That Jesus perfectly obeyed the law on your behalf. If you really want to make it here, I'm going to give you, here's an exercise in feeling bad about yourself. I'm going to tell you how to do this. Just in case anybody, in case you need that. I know we all struggle with finding things that's wrong with ourselves, but I'm going to give you another one just in case you need it for a rainy day. If you want to feel bad about yourself, 
Go to the Old Testament and start reading the rules for how one maintains purity. I don't just mean physically. I mean ceremonially. I mean religious. I mean, when I say purity, I mean purity before God in all aspects of your life. Just go, go start reading that list of rules. And when you, think, when you think Jewish law, you tend to, all of us tend to think kosher. Certain foods you don't eat. That's the first thing our mind goes to. But don't you start thinking about other things. Start thinking about things like, I don't know, the Ten Commandments. That's easy stuff, right? Raise your hand if you kept all of them. Anybody? This is the one time Billy Graham could not say, I see that hand. Nobody's going to raise their hand. Because we all know good and well, we do not keep the law well. And then, if you really want to feel bad about yourself, Jesus is the best preacher ever. He preached about the law better than any other Jewish teacher ever had. In fact, he took it a step farther. The law says, thou shalt not murder, doesn't it? Isn't that part of the ten? Thou shalt not murder. Jesus says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, anyone who hates his brother in his heart without cause is guilty of murder. You don't even have to raise your hand against them if you get mad at them. For an unworthy cause, guess what? You're guilty of murder. Same thing with adultery. Same thing with coveting. So the very last of the Ten Commandments is coveting. It's the gotcha commandment. Because every other commandment, you can look at somebody on the outside and find out whether or not they're keeping it. You can't look at somebody and tell whether they're coveting you. It's almost like God threw that last of the ten in there just to say, I'm looking at your heart. Don't forget that. And Jesus just hammers that home, hammers it home, hammers it home. That the law is not so much about what you eat and what you don't eat, what you wear and what you don't wear, where you go, where you don't go, who you're with and who you're not with. It's about the state of your heart before God. And what makes you feel horrible when you go to the Old Testament and you start reading these regulations is you find out that your heart is not nearly as righteous as you think it is. Let me rephrase. We find out that our hearts are not nearly as righteous as we think they are. I want to include myself in that. The law is really good at pointing out issues. Do you ever have that person, I know you've had that person at work, that they're really good at telling you when something is wrong, but if you ask them how to fix it, they never have an idea. Do you all know that person? Well, something's wrong. Okay, what's wrong? This is wrong. What do we do about it? I don't know. It's just discouraging. The law is kind of like that. The law is really great at telling you what's wrong with you. But it's not good at fixing it at all. The law is really good at making you feel bad about yourself and for good reason. Because we are bad people. All of us. We're bad people. But Paul says, I through the law died to the law. What does he mean by saying I died to the law through the law? Jesus, who was fully human on your behalf, 
fully God, fully man, He came and in every area that we fail at keeping the law, Christ succeeded. And He succeeded in your place. He died the penalty that you deserved. He died in your place. He suffered in your place. So that He was a perfect, lawful sacrifice on your behalf. So that when He died, those of us who identify with Christ through faith, when He died, we died to the law with Him. The law no longer has hold on a person who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when God looks down from heaven at that person, He sees the law totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ for them. Say, well, Josh, what about this? What about this that I did back when? Yes, that too. But you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. You know who does? Jesus. He died for you anyway. Through the law, Paul died to the law. And through the law, you can die to the law too. Jesus fulfilled all of it on your behalf. And what's the result of dying to the law because of Christ? Living to God. You cannot, I don't care how hard you try, I don't care how good you try and be, I don't care how much you give, I don't care how much you work, I don't care how much you serve, you cannot live to God unless you have first died to law and self through Jesus Christ. It is a losing, fruitless effort. You ever ridden a roller coaster before? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. If you're like me, you tend to hang on. And your knuckles turn this really pasty shade of, of, of white, if you're me, because you're hanging on for dear life. Trying to please God by behaving well is kind of like that. You're just gripping white knuckled. I'm going to obey. 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 But I think sometimes as Christians, if you're a Christian, listen to me. It's like doing that on a roller coaster. You're white knuckle gripping, so afraid that you're going to you're going to displease God. You're holding on because you're afraid if you let go, you're going to fall out. When it's not you holding on that's holding you in the roller coaster anyway. You're hanging on to the grip like it's your hands that's keeping you safe. When really you've got this steel harness wrapped around you while you're doing all the loops and whatnot, you know. You've got this big giant steel harness on you. That's what's holding you in. So why are you so scared and hanging on? Obeying the, feeling like you have to obey the law to keep God happy with you is like white knuckle gripping the roller coaster handles when that, that's not what's holding you in anyway. Jesus is what's holding you in. You didn't please God by behaving well. You're not gonna, God's not going to chuck you away because you don't behave well either. Christ functioned as a perfect sacrifice and substitute under the law on our behalf. Christ bore all the penalties that the law had to dish out so that those who are in Him by faith have no penalties of the law left to receive. The single largest difference between Christianity and every other religion on the planet Every other religion is a religion of do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Christianity is a religion of done. That Jesus has done this. 
It's, it's, it's done. It's over. You don't have anything you can add to it. You know, even if you, even if you, let me, I'll pick, I'll pick another religion that's it's, it's easiest, other than Judaism, which the Bible kind of lobs out as a softball. You know, I'll even give you another religion. It's, you know, the, the second fastest, about to be the fastest growing religion on the planet, Islam. You know, Islam has what's called the five pillars. They're five things that you have to do. And you're not a good Muslim and Allah will not be happy with you if you do not keep the five pillars. And they're non-negotiable. And even if you keep them, you're still not guaranteed to be allowed into heaven. That, that's a fun one about Islam, isn't it? That Muhammad didn't even know if he was going to go to heaven. That should not make you very confident in your religion when your chief prophet doesn't know if God's happy with him. Just a thought. But here we are in Christianity, and what my Bible tells me is that Jesus has done everything necessary for me. And I can have total confidence that I'm accepted, loved, and yes, even liked by God. Because of what Jesus did for me. It has nothing to do with me. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All knowing the rules does is making you conscious of the fact that you've broken them. That's all knowing the rules does. Acts 15.10 now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Paul attacks this argument by saying righteousness does not and cannot come from the law. And in our case, it's rule keeping. If you think your Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts and you wake up in the morning with your checklist and you go down your list of boxes, I read my Bible, I prayed, I didn't cuss, I didn't kick the neighbor's dog on the way out of the house, I didn't, you know, whatever. You got your list of do's and don'ts and if you keep your list of do's, you're good. If you screw up on one, then you're a nervous wreck for the rest of the day because you're afraid that God is going to, you know, smack you with a bolt of lightning or whatever. You are living, at the best case scenario, a very flawed Christianity. And worst case scenario, you're not living Christianity at all. Righteousness does not come from rule keeping. All knowing the rules does is make you conscious of your guilt. <clears throat> so if righteousness does not come from rule keeping, where does it come from? Righteousness comes from Christ Himself. This is one of the most famous verses in Galatians, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, that, you know, that would do us all, that would do all of our hearts some good. And this right here. This second half of this sermon is why I asked y'all to pray me through this sermon. Because I can go ahead and tell y'all, spiritual warfare is a real thing. It is. 
And whoever it is playing for the other team in Stapleton does not want somebody in this church to hear this. Because this sermon has been a struggle this week. Y'all, your pastor is very conscious of the fact that he is only saved by grace because he sure enough is not a good person on his own. And whoever it is in here, I pray, I pray the Lord Jesus right now, Jesus, open whoever ears this is to hear this. Somebody in here needs to hear that your righteousness has nothing to do with you. Somebody needs to hear that. Otherwise, this would not have been this difficult to prepare this week. I I dare say that there's not a single one of us who did not have that issue that John Newton had in this opening illustration where he says, I'm not what I want to be. I'm I'm not what I hope to be. But praise God, I'm not what I was. We've all had that experience if you're a Christian. But if there's somebody in here today who goes, well, I would love to be right with God, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've experienced. Maybe you don't know what was done to me. I don't know. I don't know your background, but I know who does, and I know who still wants a relationship with you because he is not concerned with what righteousness you have to offer because you don't have any. He knew that going in. Feeling like we're not good enough, feeling like we're not acceptable, that's purely on our side. And do you know what? Satan loves to remind you about it. There's a reason he's called the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. I dare you, just take a minute and go back in Job. God looks at, have you seen my servant Job? Yeah, I've seen him. He's only that way because you give him good things. Take those good things away. He'll curse you to your face. I know Job. Now, I I don't have any Bible for this. But I do know that God loves His children. And I do know that the Bible refers to Him as a father. And I've learned a couple of things about being a father over the last six months. And shares at Ingalls will verify this to you. If you want to go in Ingalls and go shopping, ask them, hey, I'm a member of Stapleton Baptist, and my pastor told you to ask what he does anytime you mention his child to him. He pulls out, they will answer you this way, he pulls out his phone and he shows us pictures until we have to go. I'm proud of my daughter. I think she's the, no offense to any of your children. I'm sure you think the same thing about them, but my daughter's the best baby on the planet. (laughs) And I'm sure to you, your baby's the best baby on the planet too. And that's okay. Part of being a parent is being proud of your child, isn't it? That's just, it's not, you can't help it. You just, just love just runs out of you, just runs out of your ears and your nose. It's just, there's too much of it. So when somebody brings up my child to me, I have to say, look at them. Isn't she pretty? Isn't she silly? Look at that giggle. Isn't it the best thing ever? I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that God might say, 
Hey, have you seen my child so-and-so? Look at them. Aren't they great? And I also don't think it's outside the realm of possibility for Satan to say, yeah, but I know what they did. Amen. God does too. But see what Satan does, Satan has never been able to, Satan doesn't understand God's grace. Angels don't understand God's grace. No angel ever has. Look in the Bible and it says that they, they look in with great interest at the church. They don't get it. Satan doesn't comprehend grace. It does not compute. So Satan makes a habit of accusing you, accusing you, accusing you, accusing you. You did this. You did this. God won't love you because. God doesn't want you because. God's not satisfied with you because. Bam, bam, bam. Over and over and over and over. And it's exhausting, isn't it? And if you haven't experienced it, you will. But you know what God says? Verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. You know what, Satan? You were right. But that me you're accusing, you're wasting your time because you're accusing a dead man. I'm dead. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That word, have been crucified, it's a perfect, which means in Greek, the action took place in the past, it was completed, and it has ongoing results all the way up to the present moment and beyond. So that crucifixion was not, it didn't just happen and then it was over, it happens and that result just keeps going and going and going. And it's also passive, which means the object of the verb, in this case Paul, in our case us, was acted on by an outside force. <clears throat> This is one of the many reasons that I believe once saved, always saved, by the way. How many times was Christ crucified? Once. If you've come to faith in Christ and you were crucified with Him, how many times have you been crucified with Christ? Once. For you to feel like you need to be saved over and over and over again, that means you have to be crucified multiple times. Which means who else has to be crucified multiple times? Christ. We're Protestants, not Catholics. We don't celebrate the Mass. I'll move on. Which, by the way, that's what's going on in the Mass. Is they're ritually sacrificing Jesus again and again. That's why we have a cross, they have a crucifix. Because Christ is not on the cross for us, it's completed. At the Mass, Christ is still on the cross because He's being offered. Y'all, a call to come to Jesus is a call to come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your sin. Die to your ambitions. Die to the law. Die to whatever it is that is still got a grip on you. And go to Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore... Listen to this. This is some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation. Asterisk, underline, highlight, bold, put little siren emojis beside it on your phone, whatever you want to do. Highlight those words, no condemnation. You know what no means in Greek? No. <laughs> None. Nada. Zippo. You know. 
to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. If you are in Christ, the law no longer has penalty left for you. Well, I just feel like I'm suffering this because God is punishing me. Stop. God is not punishing you. Well, then why else is this happening? I don't know, but I know why it's not happening. It's not happening if you are in Christ because God is punishing you for something. Because all of the punishment for your sin happened on Calvary. What was that hymn that we just sang earlier? I'll cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. I'll cling to that old rugged cross where my trophies at last I lay down. Some of us, we worried about laying our trophies down at the cross. You need to lay your past down at the cross too. You need to leave it there. You need to lay your sins down at the cross. You need to lay your trophies down at the cross. You need to lay your ambition down at the cross. You need to lay your anxiety down at the cross. You need to lay your fear down at the cross. You need to lay your shame down at the cross. And you need to carry that right on in. You need to carry the cross right on into glory and exchange it one day for a crown that won't have any of that old junk attached to it. Satan's goal is to keep you shackled to who you were. Because if you're in Christ, who you were is in a casket. That's where He wants you. And then Paul says, In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Every religion in the world functions one of two ways. Either you work your whole life to earn a right relationship with God and hope it's enough, which is every other religion, or God did all the work for you and you live your life in thankful love towards Him. Really, that's just us. Valentine's Day is coming up, isn't it? Ladies, here's a question for you. And then I'll close with the, the last verse on your handout. Here's a question for you, ladies. Let's say February 14th rolls around and you hear a knock on your door. You know, who? I wonder who this could be. And you open the door and your man has arrived. <laughs> he is wearing a clean press suit. There is not a fuzzy on it. Oh my goodness. It, y'all, this is difficult because I can hear everything people say. <laughs> He's wearing a clean press suit, black tie. He has got the prettiest dozen roses you've ever seen. If you don't like roses, then insert in your mind whatever flowers you would like. He has got the most expensive and varied Whitman sampler box you've ever seen in your life. And he also has a puppy just for you. And you say... Oh my goodness, this is adorable. Why on earth did you do this? Knowing in your mind it's Valentine's Day and he loves me. And he says, pulls out a card from his, it is February the 14th. I am your man and am therefore contractually obligated 
to bring you a dozen roses of puppy and chocolates on February the 14th. Please accept these as a token of my contract fulfillment. What are you going to do? Boom! Take that monkey suit back wherever you got it. And the, the, the illustration proved true. I have yet to meet a woman who said I would not slam the door in his face. But now, let's, let's take it and say April, let's say it's April 13th. It's not even Valentine's Day anymore. Open the door. The scene is exactly the same. And you say, why did you do this? And he says, because you're the best woman in the world and I love you. Now what happens? Woo! <laughs> this is a healthy relationship. And that's, that's going to that's gonna end well. You're going to love him. Oh, that's so sweet. Now, if you were to take a video camera and you were to record both of those instances and you were to cut out all of the audio and all of it, the two men did exactly the same thing, didn't they? Same clothing, same flowers, same chocolate, same puppy. The only difference was motive. The first man was doing it because he felt like he had to. There was no love attached. There was really no relationship. It was a contract. It was law. The second man didn't feel like he had to do it. He wanted to do it. Because the relationship was already there. The love was already there and he knew it. That's why he did it. The first man is every other religion in the world. The second man is us. Romans 5, 6 through 10. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love. Just end it. Trust in the grace of Christ.